Welcome to Maths Talk by AMSI, the podcast that supports teachers and caregivers with making maths learning effective and engaging. My name's Marcus Garrett. This is the second episode in series four for Maths Talk. And in this series, we're focusing on the teaching and learning of geometry. But today, we're chatting with the AMSI Schools Outreach Manager, Michael O'Connor, and with Outreach Officer, Cass Lowry about teaching geometry and how it can help to develop the mathematical proficiency of reasoning. Hi, Cass and Michael. How are you guys? Yeah, not too bad, considering that uh, we're back in lockdown and isolation. Mm. Yeah. Hi, Marcus. Yeah, I'm good as things can be. It's a sunny day outside. so Exactly. A bit of sunshine. Well, we might jump straight in and start with a bit of background to what you've both been up to on the AMC Schools team lately. And we might start with you, Cass. What projects have you been working on? Uh, my main project uh, the last few months has been monitoring the AMC Schools Twitter account. So, and that includes, we have a maths talk chat on uh, Thursdays. So that's exciting and it's a good way to meet other educators and also just to get some really good ideas. Cool. And what about you, Michael? It's actually been almost perfect timing for not having to travel around the country because for quite a while we've been thinking as a team collectively how we could reach more teachers and we've been looking at doing online professional learning for quite some time. We were just about ready to start exploring that and putting a couple of courses together when we hit COVID and it's allowed us to focus in a big way with that, we've just pretty much finished our first course, which has been delivered to a small group of teachers in the Hunter. And over coming months, we'll have a number of others that will go onto our Calculate site and be available the second half of 2020 for all teachers and parents who are interested. So difficult circumstances, but exciting times nevertheless. Okay, well, I thought we'd start our chat today by getting our heads around the concept of reasoning in maths, because really what we're focusing on is, is the way that geometry can develop reasoning. So we know that reasoning is one of the mathematical proficiencies that are embedded in the Australian curriculum. And if you want to find out a little more about that, we'll pop the link in to our show notes. Well, what does reasoning mean? It starts, I suppose, with taking the set of rules and skills that most people think about as being maths, certainly school maths, and turning it into a field of study. One of the things that makes maths so hard is the people don't develop that ability to think logically and make connected links between all of the individual facts. If you think of reasoning as being a way of sticking together the pieces so that you get a big picture, that's a good way of thinking about reasoning. Uh, I mean, I agree with you, Michael. And uh, if you listen to our previous podcast on geometry, we live in a 3D world. So the world is 3D. But the thing is, we take for granted the language needed to describe that world. Basic reasoning in geometry Students come to school with that, but then it's up to teachers to be able to provide them with the language to be able to deepen that understanding. So Cass, let's chat first about using geometry to help 
develop reasoning skills in primary age children and in younger children. You mentioned in our preparation for this episode that it's important to help kids learn the names for shapes and properties of shapes from a young age. So what do you mean by that and why is that important? I think the curriculum for all, all the good things it does, I think it's very sort of limited in terms of at the beginning of foundation or prep or kinder, depending on your state. It just talks about being able to know the names of some of the shapes and to be able to describe them using familiar language. It doesn't really go into the more of the background of what's needed. I, I've always sort of come from the perspective that if students can learn the names of dinosaurs or all the Pokemon characters they're interested in or whatever the latest trend is, they can learn the names of shapes, the names of their properties from a young age. This was also brought up in the previous podcast that students are excited to learn new words like quadrilaterals and irregular shapes and regular shapes. They find that interesting, that they're sponges at that age. So the more that we can do to help them understand those properties from the beginning and not develop misconceptions, because it's harder to unlearn things than it is to sort of get it right the first time. Yeah, absolutely. So an early hurdle for kids in geometry, for example, is learning about shape properties. I think you've touched on those in what you just said. So like a hexagon has six sides and six corners. Funnily enough, when I was doing my teaching degree, I did a research project into young children's knowledge of shapes. And I was pretty young then and pretty fresh. And I'd read a few articles and you start the research, you collect all this data. And I completed the test and the test said, oh, what's this shape? And the student says a triangle. And I say, how do you know it's a triangle? And the kid says, oh, it's got three sides. And I thought, oh, wow, these kids have got such this great knowledge of properties. And when I finished the research, I actually read an article which said, did you ask them what a side was? And I went, no, ah. I, I hadn't. I just assumed that when they said side, they had the same understanding as I did as a mathematician, what a side meant. But really, when you think about it for a child, side means, you know, the side of your body. It can mean inside. It can mean outside. In mathematics, a side means straight. Yeah. In a lot of classrooms, I've noticed, and I'm sure you have too, we often only see very standardised displays of shapes. They only show exemplar shapes or common shapes, you know, a circle, a square. Why is it important to learn to see things differently or see things from an alternative orientation? Why is that an important connection to make in geometry? Orientation is one of the big ideas and it's it becomes more apparent later on that if you have these misconceptions that a triangle is only a triangle if its base is at the bottom, you can carry this forward. and You can pretty much get through most of the primary school and get, you know, very good marks in mathematics. It's only going to affect you later on when you're doing an investigation into triangles when you're in high school that you have these misconceptions and you might not recognize a shape with three different sides, like a scalene triangle, as being a triangle because you've only ever seen triangles with all sides that are equal. So it's very very important that from from the beginning you're exposed to the different names of shapes and the different way it looks from different perspectives one of the activities that you can do is is I often just hold up a shape for students and I turn it and the, the common one is just a square and when you turn it most of the class will say it's a diamond and I say to them if I pick up a pen and I turn a pen does it become something else and I've literally picked up a chair in the classroom just to emphasize the point that when you turn something it doesn't become something else it's still a chair. So that was going to be one of my next questions in fact what are things that we can do as teachers to, to develop those perspectives and I, I guess what I hear you saying is keep it practical and keep it simple. 
make it fun and make it interesting. And there's so many great resources out there, like the old, they used to call them geo boards, you know, with the nails and, and you can use the rubber bands to make shapes and, yeah. and just say, rather than saying, make me a square, say, make me a shape and then go, sort of work backwards and then say, oh, what have you made? Oh, that, that looks like a crooked square. Why do you think it's crooked, you know? And then discovering that maybe that's a parallelogram or a rhombus. Years ago at a Maths Association New South Wales conference, I attended a workshop by Catherine Attard, who we had on a couple of episodes ago. And she did an activity with string where she just had us on the floor of the conference room making different shapes and exemplifying properties of shapes with a huge big bit of string stretched out between several people. And she just called the activity floor shapes, but it was incredibly fun for us as adults. And I've I've used it quite a few times in schools and kids love it. Um, and that, that's a, perhaps another way that they could have a bit of fun exploring those properties properties and using correct language. Also, what we used to do, you know, being a child of the 80s, so elastics. So getting that that a big elastic band that you, you know, you make yourself and you just tie the end together and then you, the same activity. So like either laying on the floor or just stretching it out between you and making the shape and then getting the students to explain what it is. So sort of making sure we're going, say, make a shape. Oh, how do we know what it is? And sort of working forwards and backwards. And students can discover all different things about symmetry, irregular shapes, regular shapes with students in the beginning of primary school. And they've absolutely loved it. That's great. Elastics. Bring along your bobby socks too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So tell us about symmetry. How does, how does an understanding of what symmetry is help develop reasoning capacities for kids in maths? I think it's also related to uh, this idea of orientation. So students, if they use a lot of worksheets, they sort of develop a misconception that symmetry is if you can draw the line straight down the middle, either vertically or horizontally, and it's the same on both sides and it's symmetrical. Symmetry is much bigger than that. If you go through up to high school, there's different types of symmetry, rotational symmetry, etc. And I think why hide stuff from students? I'm all about teaching them the right way the first time and we wouldn't get them to spell words incorrectly and then go, oh, actually, that's not how you spell because, but, you know, and then tell them later. So I, I think it's the same in mathematics. Just tell them the right way the first time. I, I think it's all related to being able to explain your thinking. So early on in maths, you explain your thinking through language. And then as you get more proficient at mathematics, you'll explain your thinking using the language of maths. So which is more algebraic expressions and equations. I love that. Yes. Have you got any ideas for teachers and also for parents that might help their kids develop some of the skills in geometry that we've just talked about? Some tips to help them do things like sharpen kids' geometric vocabulary or make connections to other areas of maths like location? Well, one that I saw a couple of years ago that I've been using is a book. It's called Which One Doesn't Belong? And it's by Christopher Danielson. Yep. So it's available in Australia. So if you type into Google hashtag W-O-D-B, which one doesn't belong? We'll put this in the show notes. You'll come up with all examples of where people have got four images. So it might be four shapes. Could also be four numbers, but there's many of them are shape-based. So there'll be four shapes. But I've used the activity in the classroom with students. So I've given them a few examples. And then just as a class, we've just got four objects and students had to explain why at least one of them didn't belong. Being able to create your own which one doesn't belong, to be able to find four objects and have four different reasons is actually quite challenging and it's fun as well. So And yeah, absolutely developing the skill of reasoning there. Like literally, as you just said, you're asking 
asking kids to give reasons why something either doesn't belong or why a set of shapes or objects share something in common. So that's a great activity. And it's an activity that in the remote learning environment that we're in, I could easily put an image up on the screen and have students using the uh, the writing function to write down their ideas about which one doesn't belong. Oh, so great. it's sort of an activity that works in classroom or remotely. So that makes it even better. Very cool. Thank you so much, Cass. Now, Michael, we might flick over and start having a think about secondary, but before we get started, I I was really interested in the preparation that we were doing. You were regaling us with some of the background to the history of the study of geometry. So where does geometry originally come from and how was it used? Well, the word or the name geometry comes from Greek as a whole lot of things do. Geo, as I'm sure everyone knows, means world or earth and metri or metric is measure. So it was literally the study of measuring the earth. The Greeks were the first ones to put it all together into books and we think of Euclid and Pythagoras in that respect and they wrote it all down and kind of connected it in a way. Before them, the Egyptians and the Sumerians, they knew a lot of these rules. They actually knew, for example, Pythagoras's theorem hundreds, if not a thousand years before Pythagoras in Greece wrote it down. But for most of the time before the Greeks, it was a set of rules to follow, uh, instructions to do, if you like. It was only rare that someone might have been educated enough, like the royal architect in the Egyptian court, to be able to kind of put all these things together. So there's very few people who actually thought in a logical way about the, the mathematics and particularly the geometry. And so it was seen as being this thing of, oh, okay, well, if I, if I get to this side and this side together, I end up with a right angle triangle and on from there. But they didn't have an understanding of this is always true. With the Greeks, they actually thought through it and they started with the concrete. They started with physical objects that had the property of being round like a circle or right angled so that there was a floor and a wall. And they started to then think about it. They went from the concrete to representations and that was diagrams and drawings. Then they found that those drawings they could imagine in their heads and they started playing around with thinking about things and thought, if I connect this and this property, is it always true? And so here's an example of one activity that you can take with students at early secondary school level. Imagine a river that's too wide and too deep to cross, but there's a stretch of it that has both banks straight and parallel to each other. You want to find out how wide the river is. How can you do it? Simple way is you stand at a point so that you can see a landmark that's directly opposite you. So a tree or a rock. And then you start walking along your bank until that tree and the bank that you're walking along make a 45 degree angle. If you've got any triangle that's got a right angle in it, so 90 degrees and a 45 degree angle where you're standing, you know that the third angle in the triangle is always going to be a 45 degree angle as well. From that, you know that the length of your side and the length of the side that crosses the river are also exactly the same. So all you have to do is mark out or measure or count out 
your number of steps that you've walked to take the angle from being 90 degrees to 45. That's some great lateral and logical thinking right there. Yeah. And it's kind of this idea of reasoning. Oh, if this is true, and I want to prove that it's always true, this particular property, then I can use it anywhere. And one of the things that example leads on to is trigonometry. All trig is, is a matter of taking all the angles you can think of between zero and 90 degrees, making triangles out of them, right angle triangles out of them, and measuring the sides. If you can do that for one set of triangles, you've then got the ability to work out angles and sides of any other triangle, no matter how big it is. Uh, It could be as big as half the universe if you wanted it to be, and it would still work. I distinctly remember learning trigonometry at school and just being told that that right angle triangle that Michael described is a one, one square root two. That's it. Like there was no background story. It was just a fact that you were told, finding ways to relate it to a real life example. And that's something you could actually do at school, walk it out check it um helps with the reasoning because then you go oh right that's that's makes sense how they did that so now let's chat about geometry for kids that are at secondary school i imagine things uh, start to get more complex in terms of what we define as geometry it's not just about shapes and objects and their properties and symmetrical properties anymore but there's also connections with other areas of maths and those connections start to get a bit more blurred and as an example in year year five and six kids start to use the cartesian plane they start with geometric shapes and describing those on the cartesian plane but then we move into defining those shapes into algebraic graphing what are some of the main applications of geometry as as kids move into the first few years of secondary school and how do those applications and skills help develop reasoning capacities for higher levels of maths later on? It starts with having the concrete. So we think of a particular shape or a particular object. Here I'm using the term object to mean a point or a line or a segment. I know that there is a difference in technicality between two-dimensional shapes and three-dimensional objects, but there are also objects or components, perhaps it might be a better word, that we make up our images from. But we start with the concrete, the physical idea, then we represent those as diagrams and they go on to the Cartesian plane, as you said. What we do is we start with actual lengths and numbers. So a length of one and an angle of 30 degrees. Then we can move and say, oh, this is a general case. So instead of having my length one, I can say it's going to be any length. And that's where the abstraction comes in. That's where algebra comes in, because instead of saying I've got a triangle with exactly this length, I'm saying I've got a triangle with these properties that connect the sides and the angles together, then I can make it much more powerful. It becomes a generalization and I build it from there. That generalization is what we think of as algebra. Yes. 
we just use the shorthand, the the X's and the Y's and the A's and the B's and all of those. They're shorthand for not having to write out in full sentences that I'm talking about this particular example of a triangle and this one of the three angles in it and so forth. Unfortunately, the shorthand makes it harder to decipher if you haven't actually spent time building up that background knowledge. And that's where what Cass was saying before about it being really important to name the parts Mm. of shapes because when we name something, we learn about it. We pick up properties. We can imagine it. So I have this image, for example, of Marcus. Even though I can't see you at the moment, I would recognize your face anywhere. (laughs) It's the same thing. It's that idea of I've put a name to it. If I'm familiar enough with what it is that I've named... I can bring back all the rest that I know. It's a bit like opening a, a filing cabinet. I go to the I go to the Marcus drawer, open it up, and here's all the things that I know about Marcus. But I didn't need them until then. So yeah, a little bit like that sort of thing. It's a way of kind of organising our thoughts. Yeah, okay. And I guess that builds on what we were saying earlier about prototype shapes. So if you've only ever seen an equilateral triangle and it's green and it's in the pattern block set, then that's the only image that you have of a triangle in your head. But if you've been exposed to all different triangles, you've drawn them, you've used programs to make them, you've seen them with elastics on the carpet, that's all in your box of, oh, Oh, we're doing something with triangles today. Okay, what are triangles? And you've got this whole resource of what triangles are and they all look different and they've got different lengths. So you can then use that to then to assign different values to it. It sounds like what we're doing is we're using the dimension of knowing about shapes and angles and the properties of those things to make generalizations that we're then applying to all shapes and angles that are similar to that. And we can actually describe those generalizations in algebraic terms later in high school too. And we do that in maths all the time where we we take uh, logical conditions and we infer the, the mathematical properties or relationships that hold true for one set of circumstances should then hold true for another as long as those conditions are met. So can you explain a bit further how geometry helps students develop those reasoning skills of logical inference and generalization? I suppose, again, I'll start with an example that's concrete and how that builds up to a theory about circles. One of my favorite geometric examples is called the carpenter's construction of a circle. Lots of carpenters don't necessarily carry compasses with them and set squares to make lovely, pretty drawings, but they do need to cut holes in walls and doors from time to time. And often those holes need to be circles. Many, many hundreds of years ago, they came up with a really neat way of doing it. You get two nails and nail them into the wall at the length that you want the circle to be wide. That's called the diameter. Then you find a piece of scrap wood, make sure that it's got a right angled, so a 90 degree corner on it. Then by placing the two adjacent sides together so the ones that touch at that right angle up against the nails if you slide it around you end up with 
a perfect half circle. Cool. You flip it over and you get the other perfect half circle. And it's a very quick, easy way. And it's nice and concrete. It's using things that people can work with with their hands. You then take that idea and put it on paper and you end up with a circle Mm -hmm. and you put a diameter across. So a diameter is the width of a circle and it goes from one side of the circumference through the center of the circle to the other side. And then no matter where you go, if you start on the left, for example, from that point where the diameter meets the circumference and draw a straight line to somewhere else on the circle, and then from there back down to the other end of the diameter, the angle you've just made will always be a right angle. That's a circle theorem that lots of students first come across in year 10. Again, it's that three-step process. You start with the concrete and you play around and you become familiar with the properties. Then you start to extract it a little bit and you say, well, okay, it doesn't need to be a piece of wood and two nails. It can be a diagram. Then you can say, well, I I can call it by its names. I can call it by the circumference and the diameter and so forth. And you build it up. At the end, you know that is going to be a property that works for every single circle anywhere you can find it. Mm. So that's the generalization. And that's the reasoning process as you go through. You build it up as you go along. So you're taking what you know and you're saying we can now apply that to new situations and and use that to solve problems. Yeah. Or even before that, you're exploring to find out what you can about how that system works. And that then builds up your knowledge. And the more you know about it, the more familiar you become. And over time, it becomes second nature and automatic. Mm. The background activity of drawing the circle, though, is something that could happen quite easily in the primary school. Yes. Yeah. Rather than just simply, you know, tracing around a paper plate. Yes. We could get kids to draw circles using that method. And that's all they do at that stage. And then later on, they they go, oh, now it's all connected. We often just teach what the curriculum says and don't think about what comes beyond Mm. and how little activities like that can really help students. Yeah, you're right, Cass. And I think things like that, I can just imagine kids' reaction to that. A lot of kids would think that's magic. Oh, my gosh, I just made a perfect circle by doing something other than, as you said, tracing around a plate. That's really engaging, isn't it? You just reminded me of another lovely activity that Jen, Janine Sprackle, our overall manager for the Schools Division of Empty, showed me many years ago now. And it's a way of showing students that the idea of a circle is entirely within their own mind. So you start by getting a pile of coins and they all, they're all the same denomination. So they're all $1 coins. And you put that pile on the palm of your hand and you say, well, okay, the coins are circular in shape, but because it's a pile of them, it's not a circle. What you've got is a cylinder. You take one of the coins off and the cylinder's a little bit lower and you keep taking coin after coin after coin off until you've just got one left. Then you push that coin into your hand and when you push it in, what happens is the 
outside rim of the coin makes an indent in the palm for a few seconds. You take that last coin off and you can see that faint image for a little while. But even that's not the circle. You have to wait until it fades and go, what you now have in your mind's eye, in your imagination, is the circle in its purest form, in that ideal form that the Greeks were the first ones to appreciate and raise to the level of a science rather than just a craft. Yeah, we're getting into the interesting world where maths meets platonic philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting stuff. But it's an activity that shows the difference between 3D objects and 2D shapes. You can't actually touch a 2D shape. Yeah, yeah. They only exist in your head. You can see a picture of them. You can say the front of that the headlight on the car looks circular, but it's not actually a circle. Well, that's been uh, a great chat about why geometry is such an important underpinning part of mathematical thinking and and also some really good solid tips about how to tease out that thinking, the vocabulary, the generalization skills that we work with students when we're teaching them geometry. A lot of areas of of connection and crossover. So thanks so much for maths talking with me today, Cass and Michael. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Don't forget to subscribe to Maths Talk on Apple Podcast and follow us on Spotify and please share the Maths Talk podcast. We can be reached via email on the address choosemaths at ampsy.org.au because we love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Twitter at AMSI Schools or on Facebook by searching for Choose Maths. Tell us, what are some activities that you have seen or used in your classroom to help develop geometric reasoning and thinking in your students? Also, don't forget to join our weekly Maths Talk Twitter chats at 8pm Thursday nights, Sydney and Melbourne time. Just look for and follow the hashtag Maths Talk. The podcast transcript for today's episode can be downloaded from the AMSI Schools Teacher Support website, calculate.org.au, and the accompanying episode notes will give you some useful links and resources. We'd also love you to jump in to check out the rest of the Calculate website for lots of freely available resources and ideas on helping students with their mathematics. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.